So it's no big secret that addiction is a big problem in America these days. Um, the opioid crisis is getting a lot of airtime, uh, a lot of attention, and opioids are a big problem. The National Institute of Health estimates in terms of the cost to society, crime, healthcare costs, uh, missed productivity from work hours, opioids cost Americans about $78.5 billion a year, which is a lot until you realize that that's fourth on the list. Fourth behind, uh, illicit drugs at $193 billion cost to society, alcohol at $249 billion a year, and tobacco at $300 billion a year. I don't know why it surprised me that smoking was at number one. I think I've grown up my whole life with anti-smoking campaigns, and I just felt like it had declined. That it wasn't that big of an issue anymore. But 14% of Americans still smoke. $300 billion in cost every year to our society. And we total it all up. That's $740 billion a year. Just, that's just monetary costs. That's not even counting the stories of, uh, of brokenness and addiction and, and loss and death and pain that, that's caused by substances in our country every year. And that's not even the whole story. That's just substance abuse. When you start talking about behavioral addictions and psychologists, the, the websites I looked like, that I looked at uh, in studying for this agreed that work, shopping, sex, internet, video games, food, and gambling are all on the rise as it relates to addiction in America these days. We have a huge issue with addiction. And in the midst of all of these rising levels of addiction, professionals are unable to really fully help people because we still don't understand the nature of addiction. We still don't really understand what it is that drives people uh, to be compelled to use these substances or engage in behaviors, even to a point of destructiveness in their life. It can't be narrowed down to a single cause. There's certainly a genetic link. There's a hereditary link, a biological component but, but when we look at families and when we look at people, what we see is that there's also a psychological and an environmental effect as well, which makes treating people who experience addiction really, really difficult because we don't understand fully what causes it. And so clinicians are, are left trying to treat people almost one at a time because every story of addiction, every experience of addiction is different. But for nearly 80 years, there has been one resource that has been recommended more than any other and has helped countless numbers of people. One survey indicated that clinicians noted that 80% of them had recommended this resource. And the resource is 12-step groups, the 12-step program of recovery. The 12-step program, of which you've probably heard of, originally originated th uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, two guys, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, as they are known in AA circles, developed the 12 steps and the 12 foundational principles of AA way back in 1935. And since that time, countless numbers of people have entered into these programs. Again, 80% of clinicians surveyed said that they had prescribed or directed people. Even the judicial system, the, the correction system, uh, prescribes people going into 12-step programs when they've had some sort of drug or alcohol-related crime. And 
I, I, uh, I went online and I looked. The 12-step program isn't limited just to alcohol. There, there are so many other programs and so many other groups that have embraced these 12 steps and applied them to their particular form of addiction. I went on, online and Wikipedia, it's not necessarily always the most reliable source, but 34 different uh, 12-step groups were listed on Wikipedia. I had heard of most of them before, uh, almost all of them, I have friends, uh, people that I know who have been in dozens of them. Uh, now, I have to admit, the one that I'd never heard of before was Clutterers Anonymous. But now that my wife knows that that's a thing, I'm pretty sure she's going to make me and my, my kids start going to meetings <laughs> at some point soon. And over the years, I've had so many friends who've benefited from the 12 steps. So many people that I know who have gone to 12-step groups and that has been incredibly helpful in their recovery process. In fact, I don't know anyone who's actively pursuing recovery or has pursued recovery who hasn't at some point embraced the 12 steps and hasn't in some way taken steps in that journey. And yet, as I think about the 12 steps, what I realize is I've never personally benefited I've never personally benefited from a 12-step group. I've never even actually been to a 12-step group before. I'm familiar with the process. I've studied it. I know people have been in it. I've recommended people to go to it, but I've never actually benefited myself. Why? Because I've never struggled with addiction in that way. I've never needed to. It's not like uh, I haven't engaged in substances that could have been addictive or haven't tried things that could have ended up being addictive. It's not like I haven't engaged in behaviors that other people become addicted to. It's not as if there's not addiction in my family and there's no genetic predisposition to, to it. I have been exposed. I have tried things that could have been addictive. It's just for whatever reason, that switch never flipped for me. So as much respect as I've always had for the 12-step program, it always felt like it was something that was for other people. And then a few years ago, I read this story from the Bible that made me start thinking about the 12 steps completely differently than I ever had before. And I began to see that the 12 steps, part of the reasons that it, that it works so effectively for so many people is that it is based on a truth that is so much deeper and so much more impactful, and so much more for people than, than those who are just struggling with addiction. It's something that you and I and everyone could actually benefit from. That's the story that we're going to take a look at today. If you're new to New Denver, or if you're visiting with us this week, uh, as Brian mentioned, we are in the season of Lent. This is the 40-day period, that, uh, not counting Sundays, that leads up to Easter. Uh, we began on Wednesday. And if you missed last week, uh, we did an introduction, an explanation of Lent, what it is, and why we engage in it, why we explain it. I'm not going to go back through all of that. You can go online and listen to that. It's on our podcast. <clears throat> uh, and I would encourage you to do that because it does give a, a, an overview of why we do Lent and why we think it's important. But I will reiterate that Lent is not an obligation. It's not a requirement that we have to. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to engage in practices and in experiences that will help us to engage with God during this season of time. Help us to walk through learning about Jesus's life and connecting with him and his story. As we read through the scriptures, we read through these stories. That's what we're doing on Sundays is we're going through the book of Luke, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And we're choosing stories where Jesus interacted with people in order to learn what we could learn. About, uh, about those experiences and how they apply to our life. 
And then we have a, a calendar as well. Through the week, a lot of us are reading the book of Luke. We've broken it down into chunks, little sections of the book so that you can read along. There's a calendar on your way out. You can grab one if you didn't get one last week. <clears throat> and so we're continuing on this journey today. And, and if you've been reading along with us last week, then you started in the book of Luke and you got through about chapter four, which was Jesus got, you got through Jesus's birth and all the Christmas stories. And then the really weird story we looked at last week in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And today I'm going to take a look uh, at a story that comes out of chapter five, which is the beginning of the section we're going to read for this week. And this is a new phase and shift, a new direction in Jesus's ministry. As he, he started traveling around and he started performing some miracle do, miracles, doing some miraculous things. And so he's starting to, to draw crowds. And the new phase of his ministries, he is beginning to invite people to follow him. He is taking on apprentices. He is taking on people that he is going to train, to take under his wing and train as a teacher or rabbi, which was a common thing during this time, common thing for people to do, to take on apprentices, take on disciples. And so he begins to do that. But as we look at the stories that begin in chapter five, what we see is he's not choosing the people that you would expect a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, a learned person of that day who, who's starting his own ministries, who's starting to travel and teach and tell people about God and do miraculous things. He's not inviting the kind of apprentices you would expect. He doesn't go to the synagogue school to find the nice, brightest Jewish, little Jewish boys he doesn't go to the temple to find people who really care about observing the law and knowing the Torah. He doesn't find the most learned scholars. In the beginning of chapter five, the first story of the people that Jesus invites, Jesus goes down to the docks and engages with the fishermen. These guys, Peter, James, and John, who were all partners in a fishing business together. And there's nothing wrong with these guys. I mean, these are solid blue collar guys, but these are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. These are not the guys that are picked first for kickball. I mean, this, these are a little bit of a band of misfits. And so it's an unusual choice. And we begin to wonder, what is it that Jesus is looking for? And then the story we're going to look at today is the next person that he invites. And if we were confused by his first pick, we are confounded by his next choice. So starting in Luke chapter five, we're gonna pick up the story in verse 27. That's page 719 on the black Bibles that are there at your seats. If you wanna follow along, you can do that uh, or you can pull out your phone, use your app. We've also got the verses on the screen. So verse 27 begins this way. It says, after this, and you'll have to go read this week to find out what happened, that this, what is after this? What is that all about? I'm not gonna get into that. That's for you to read this week. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. And I'm gonna stop right here in the story and fill in a few gaps because this story, it first appears, first of all, it appears in three of the four accounts of Jesus's life. So there are four books that are about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It appears here in Luke. It appears almost identically in the book of Mark. And it also appears in the book of Matthew with one notable exception. The name of the tax collector in Matthew is given differently. The name given in Matthew is Matthew. And because of the details of the events, it's led people to believe that then as now, people had more than one name and were called different things in different contexts. So Levi, the person that we're reading about here, is Matthew. One of the people who would become one of the closest of Jesus's followers who would eventually write 
the book of Matthew, one of the accounts of Jesus's life. I mean, talk about like all time New York Times bestseller. Like this, this guy, he wrote a book that we're still reading today. So that's the person that we're talking about. He, he not only was one of Jesus's closest followers, but he is the one who preserved for us much of what we know about Jesus's life. So the second thing is that inviting this man, Matthew or Levi, uh, a tax collector, become a follower and apprentice, it was even more controversial than inviting a bunch of fishermen. And here's why. You have to remember the historical context of what was going on at the time. Israel, where this story is taking place, where Jesus was from and where all of these guys were from, Israel was not an independent nation. Israel was a part of the Roman Empire. So they had been conquered long ago by the Roman Empire. And as such, as Roman subjects, they were subject to tax. And that's where this job comes in. Matthew's doing the job of a tax collector. Now, it was a different system at that time than what we have. So there was not an IRRS. There wasn't an, you know, internal Roman revenue service. That, that didn't, it wasn't a thing. The people who collected taxes, tax collectors, weren't government employees. They were sort of independent contractors, they entered into relationships with Rome and they basically bid on these jobs to collect taxes from a particular area for Rome. And the reason that they would do that, it was, it was extremely lucrative because Rome gave them tons of latitude to be able to collect more than they needed to. And there was tons of corruption. Tax collectors were known to collect way more than they were supposed to. So they got rich by collecting these taxes, which meant they were totally despised. Here they are, the Romans occupying a particular territory. They're foreigners occupying another land. And these people that they employed, particularly those who were locals, were hated. So Matthew, Levi, who was, based on his name, we believe a Jewish man, here he is working for the Romans, imposing heavy taxes on his fellow countrymen and getting rich in the process. I mean, if Peter, James, and John were some of the last guys picked in kickball, I mean, Matthew would have been the last. I mean, he was hated. He would have been a hated person in society at this time. And so as, as a result, <clears throat> what we see is this story would have been shocking to anyone who knew all that and knew for a fact that this would be the last person that Jesus should be picking to be one of his closest followers. But that's exactly what he does. So why? Why does he choose Matthew. Let's keep reading. Verse 29, it says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, so Levi is really excited here about Jesus's invitation, so much so that he leaves his job as a tax collector. We, do, we don't really understand his motivation, but in the moment, the honor of being invited by Jesus, this, this teacher to, to take up a new trade, he takes him up on it and he begins following him. And, and right away, he invites everyone that he knows, all of his friends to a banquet, and he invites Jesus. So who does he invite? He invites his friends. He invites other tax collectors and other socially disreputable people. And this catches the attention of the local Jewish 
leadership, the, the local Jewish religious leaders, because they already had their eye on Jesus. They would have known anyone who was a rising teacher and expert in religious thought. This wasn't uncommon. People would become teachers and they would, they would have a particular approach or way of interpreting the Torah and a particular way of living and they would take on students and they would sort of create a school of thought, if you will. There were different trusted and, and, and honored rabbis who had these schools of people that would follow them and model their lives after them. So that wasn't particularly unusual, but it would have caught their attention that Jesus was beginning this process, beginning his own ministry, that, that he was already starting to draw crowds, which tells me he was probably a dynamic communicator, dynamic figure, possibly because there were stories that he was starting to heal people. And now he's starting to amass a following. He's starting to take on students. So the, the Jewish leaders of his day would have known and would, would have wanted to know, what is this guy up to? What is he doing? What, what way of teaching is he is he engaging in? And why is he inviting this guy who is a tax collector? That would have caught their attention for sure. But the fact that Jesus then goes to a party, a banquet that's thrown by this guy, Matthew, confounds them even more. And look at what they ask. They're asked, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now, first of all, this this isn't just about who Jesus is choosing to eat dinner with. This is a question about religious purity. Because at the time, the way that the, the, the Jewish religious experts understood their responsibility was to help people to maintain relationship with God by following and being observant to the Jewish law, which had, if you just read the book of Leviticus, it's all about the, their daily practices, about, about what they could do, and what they couldn't do, what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And, and there was a lot about uh, eating and, and how they ate and what they ate and how they were supposed to wash themselves before. And so to, to ignore that and to not follow the law was to risk being ritually impure and, and being out of relationship with God, essentially. And, and so at this time, you have to understand that eating with somebody wasn't just about eating a meal together. In this culture, when you sat down to eat with somebody, it, it, was, a, it was a way of, of social connectedness that, that implied we're together, like we're one. Wait, this is my friend. I affirm everything about this person and we're connected in an intimate relational way because we're gonna share a table together. We're gonna share a meal together. And so in, 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 in being invited in and accepting the invitation with a bunch of tax collectors, the most disreputable kinds of people that, that could have been imagined, and, and just generally sinners, people who were outside of ritual purity and, and who couldn't practice worshiping God. Maybe they were non-Jews. They, maybe they hadn't been circumcised. Maybe they, they, they just didn't practice or didn't know. Jesus, in the eyes of the religious experts, was at risk of himself becoming impure and being disconnected from God. And so they ask him. They ask his disciples first, and then he gives an answer They ask, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And Jesus's answer is at once simple and incredibly insightful to understand his mission in the world, what kind of teacher he was becoming, why he was taking on the students and the people that he was, and why he was teaching what he was teaching, and how he understood the implications of a relationship with God through him what it meant to call people to a relationship with God and who he was calling. Look at what he says. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, 
but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what Jesus is saying here is, hey guys, I get it. You're upset because I'm breaking all the rules, rules and law. But here's the thing. If your life is okay, if you're good, if you think following these external rules and laws and sacrificing animals, if you think that's what puts you in right standing with God, if there's nothing in your life that you look at and you, you know is, is brokenness inside of you, if you don't feel that there's any disconnection between you and God whatsoever, that the law fulfills all that you need, then you're good. I, I've got nothing for you. I'm not here for you. If you think you're good, I've got nothing for you. But if you are someone who recognizes that there's something that's not quite right in your life, if there's brokenness and contrition and a sense that things in my life are not the way they're supposed to be, Jesus would say, you're welcome. Come to the table. Let's eat together. And this is the point where I made the connection and understood what the 12-step process had tapped into. And it's this. If you talk to anybody who's in recovery about what it took for them to finally get help, they'll talk about coming to a realization of need. It was in the video. If you talk to anybody who's in recovery, they'll talk about hitting bottom. And these are heartbreaking stories. Heartbreaking stories of pain and loss and suffering, sometimes arrest, sometimes physical injury of some severe kind, sometimes losing someone, sometimes it's an intervention from family, like we saw in the video. And in every case, it's told with a sense of regret, but it's tinged with a sense of gratitude as well, because hitting bottom was the catalyst to seek help and to make change in their life. I met with a friend last month, um, a good friend, a guy that I've known for a number of years here in Denver, and he just started uh, a recovery process. He's going hardcore. He's doing 90 meetings in 90 days. And we had talked about his substance abuse. He was, alcohol was his drug of, is his drug of choice. And then we talked about that before, and he'd mentioned, I think it might be an issue. It might be a challenge. But I had been with this guy when he'd been drinking before, and I'd never seen him off the rails. It, it, it was never... He, he just never seemed like it was an issue or a problem. So I was kind of surprised when he told me, hey, I'm in recovery. I'm, I'm doing meetings every day, 90 meetings in 90 days. I was like, what was it? What was it that broke through for you? What was it that brought you to the end and, and, and made you realize that you, you actually needed to pursue help? He said, well, about a month ago, I was having some stomach pain and I, I went to the hospital and they told me that, that many of my organs were starting to shut down. That the pain I was feeling was actually pancreatitis. My pancreas was in distress. My liver, he said, was on, just on the verge of entering into cirrhosis. And the doctor told me if I didn't change something about my life, I was gonna be dead within a year. Now this is a guy who's in his 30s. He's an entrepreneur, successful businessman, young family, would never guess it. I mean, you would never know this. This is not a guy who has three DUIs and who's, like, who's been in trouble, can't keep a job. This guy is sharp. He's on it. Turns out he's just a really high-functioning alcoholic. 
And right there in the hospital, he admitted to himself. He hit bottom. He admitted that he had a problem. Step one of the 12 steps is I admitted I am powerless over my addiction, that my life had become unmanageable. And this step is difficult for people who struggle with substance abuse to get to. A lot of them die before they ever actually get to that point. But for those who do, it's a gift of grace and the possibility for change. And here's where I finally saw the connection between what 12 steps have has stumbled onto and all the rest of us. All of those who don't feel like we need that or have never really felt any compulsion to go to a 12-step group before. Don't miss this. This is the key. Just because I've never struggled with substance abuse or behavioral addiction in a way that I couldn't control it or manage it doesn't mean there's not brokenness in my life. It doesn't mean that there's not things that I look at, things about my character that I know don't conform to the picture or the image of God. Things about myself that that aren't the way I want them to be. There are habits and behaviors that I know that are destructive for myself and for other people. I'm just a really high functioning person. I can hide a lot of that stuff. You see, this brokenness that's in me and that's in you is what the Bible calls sin. It's the propensity that we have to go our own way, to reject whatever God has to say about the way we should live our life and to do things on our own. It's the thoughts, the attitudes, the behaviors, the decisions, the choices that we make that break our relationship with God, that hurt ourselves and hurt other people, both by what we do and by what we fail to do. And for some of us, our brokenness is really, really obvious. We end up in the hospital with, with a doctor telling us we're going to be dead within a year if we don't change our behaviors. We get arrested because we're buying illegal drugs or soliciting a prostitute. We get fired for compulsively lying or stealing. But most of us are just really high-functioning sinners. We can just hide it really, really well. No one sees how much we envy other people or nurse resentment in our hearts against people that we know. No one sees... How, mu- how many hours that we compulsively binge television or play video games to try and hide from doing anything else in our life to, to soothe or coat or medicate the hurt inside of us. No one sees the amount of time or the money that we spend on things we don't need and can't afford to prop up our sense of identity, shopping online. No one sees how much we feed our lust with pornography as we just carve out our soul in the process. And here's the thing, we're all addicts. We're all addicted to something, maybe multiple somethings. The question is, do we know it? Are we aware of it? Have we admitted to ourselves that we're powerless over this thing in us that drives us to do things, say things, think things that hurt ourselves and hurt other people? And we can't solve the problem on our own. I don't care what self-help tells you, the answer is not inside of you. It's not bearing down, working harder. It's not 12 steps to a better you if you just work harder. No, the 12 steps, the real 12 steps, 
include a sense of surrender. Step two says, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And step three is I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him. This is the power of the 12 steps. It's recognizing our powerlessness over this brokenness that's inside of us, regardless of what the manifestation of what that brokenness looks like. If you're here today and your life is good, you don't really have anything that you're struggling with. There's, there's nothing in your character, nothing in, and when you look in the mirror that you're ashamed of or that you wish were different about you. If you're just crushing it at work and you got no relational problems, no relational issues or hangups, no habits, no bad decisions that you regret, I got nothing for you. Jesus has nothing for you. But if you're here today and you look in the mirror every day and you see the things that you hate about yourself, that you wish were different, that you've tried so many times to change, if you see behaviors in your life that are hurting yourself and hurting other people, if you see the things in your life that you wish were different, that you desperately want to be different, welcome. You're among friends. You're exactly where you are supposed to be. Hi, my name is Stephen, and I'm a sinner. Ah, there we go. <laughs> That's the way we should start church every week. Because we're all in the same boat. It's just whether or not we've admitted our need, embraced our powerlessness to change that, and looked to God. And Jesus is waiting. The table is still set for you and for me to come and to receive the forgiveness. He meets us right where we are and he loves us enough to not let us stay there. He wants to enter in and to help walk us through a process of recovery, reconciliation and redemption to see change in our life, not overnight, not right away, one day at a time, one choice at a time, one decision at a time, sometimes one minute at a time. But there is hope. There is hope for all of us in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and just acknowledge that we are all broken. There are things about ourselves that we know don't honor you, don't conform to the character that you show us that is true and beautiful. Habits and ways of living and choices that we've made that are, that are destructive to ourselves and to others. And, and God, I, I just pray for the person who's been fighting against that and, and hates the weakness that it feels like uh, is inherent in admitting that that they're powerless, that there's nothing that they're gonna do to change that. I just pray you'd give them the courage to see that true power actually is available to them when they surrender. And for all of us, God, who've been on this journey for a while and recognize our brokenness, help us to see that we still have to live one day at a time. Just because we've surrendered certain sins or certain brokennesses over to you, we still have more to, to do. The further I go, the further I realize my need for you and the more I need, know that I need your grace every single day. 
And we're so grateful that it's available to us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Give us the courage, the courage to admit to ourselves and to you the ways that we need you, that we might receive your grace. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.